Please turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at uh, just a few verses here that have been um, very formative for our church. You, you're going to hear the language of, uh, of how uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, literally, the, the, you know, the word that you can translate there, you could just as easily say, He tabernacled among us, He pitched His tent among us, and and uh, the presence of God with us through Jesus uh, has been, um, thank God, our message for the past 15 years, and we pray it will continue to be uh, the message uh, that Tabernacle has for our community and for the world. So please stand in honor of his word. I'm going to read verses 14 through 17. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would get glory and that you would bless your word and that you would help us to receive it, uh, to be changed by it. And in changing us, uh, you would change the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, I just want to explore those two words of grace and truth. Um, we're going to ultimately get to what, is, what do those mean with regard to glory. Um, so we're going to talk about the grace of truth and uh, the truth about grace, and then ultimately how uh, those two uh, realities are, are glorious when they exist together um, rather than, than separately. Um, before we, we get into that, though, um, I just want to review the weekend. Uh, I want to thank all of you who have helped with the art show and the birthday party yesterday, and, and uh, we're about to enjoy a, a wonderful uh, meal together after the, the service, so I, I certainly want to encourage you to stick around. Um, we'll, we'll serve lunch around noon. In between the service and lunch, uh, you can enjoy the slideshow again. I know, you know, you really wanted to see the rest of that. Um, but, uh, but just, uh, you know, the art show uh, blew me away. I, I'd been wanting to do that for years, honestly, and I was just afraid. Uh, I was afraid of two things. I was afraid that if we, if we do an art show, um, nobody's going to bring any art. We're not going to have anything to show. Or that if we did have something to show, nobody would care uh, and nobody would come. But uh, as it turns out, it was, it, was, um, it was beyond expectations. People are saying that there were over 750 people there. It was the biggest art show <laughs> that a church has ever, ever sponsored. Um, and, and then the birthday party yesterday was wonderful. We, uh, we kind of combined the, uh, the Guatemala theme um, and our relationship with them. Tabernacles turned 15, and in, in Latin American cultures, when you turn 15, it's called the quinceanera. Um, and so for, for girls, uh, it's, it's sort of their debutante. You know, it's a big deal. And so we, we had a big deal birthday party. It was, it was huge. It was so huge. Uh, people are saying there were like 500 kids there, not to mention adults. And, uh, you know, uh, those are the reports. Um, and, and so 
We're just amazed by that. Uh, and we're so thankful, so good, so huge. A um, couple, a few years back, uh, Stephen Colbert uh, coined the term uh, truthiness. And uh, the Oxford English Dictionary in 2016 kind of took that a step further, borrowed that term, and, and, and developed this whole uh, thing they called the 2016 Word of the Year. It's actually two words, but they put a hyphen between it, so you get it. But it, we're, we're a post-truth culture. What is post-truth? Um, the Oxford Dictionary defines post-truth, it's an adjective relate, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. So in a post-truth uh, world, it doesn't really matter what the facts are, what the aerial photography demonstrates, or, you know, what's objective. What matters is how you feel about what's said, about whatever the report is, and if it feels true to you, then it's true for you. And that's the post-truth uh, world. But what if something is true, you know, factually true, but it doesn't feel true for you? And in a post-truth world, um, does that then mean we are also in a post-lie world where lies really aren't measurable anymore? What, what does it mean if something feels like a lie, then it's false for you even though it's true? Or what if, what if something is a lie, it's factually, you know, unverifiable and, and not true, but it doesn't feel false to you, you know? You can see how you would just, you would have the liberty to completely twist and turn what people are saying and, and, and so on. So in a post-lie world, nobody's willing to, to say a lie is a lie. Um, and so the fact checking organizations um, even support this. Uh, instead of using the word lie, if a politician or a business person or some kind of public figure uh, says something that's untrue, they'll call it a falsehood or a misstatement or uh, a, a misleading assertion. And, and we'll use these little technical terms for it to measure how false is it uh, in terms of the number of Pinocchios or uh, how many pants are on fire, which is sort of an allusion to the fact that lies still exist, but not really. Um, so uh, PolitiFact says that uh, they, they, they absolutely affirm, no, we don't use the word lie anymore. PolitiFact is one of these fact-checking organizations, and uh, um, one of their uh, folks says, day in, day out, we avoid the use of the term lie because we rate statements, not people. We rate statements, not people. Uh, truth and lie uh, are no longer objective. They're just subjective things that people invent and live with or discard and live without based on personal preference. And, um, and that's why it's important for us to recognize that truth is a gift. And when we lose 
truth, um, we recognize what we've lost. You know, you don't really miss something until you lose it. And you realize what a gift it is. Uh, God gives us truth as a gift. Um, he, in John 17, uh, Jesus is praying. He says, sanctify them in the truth. That is his, uh, his disciples, us. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God tells us the truth. It's a gift to us. It's impossible for God to lie. Um, God's word is truth, and God's word is a gift. Therefore, the truth is a gift. Let's not, let's not lose sight of that. You, you and I are given a beautiful gift when it comes to God's truth. Um, so it's, truth, truth is gracious, and truth is also graceful. Um, truth, when it's best expressed, is beautiful. It's not just a gift, but it's, it's lovely. Um, when Jesus was on trial before Pilate, there's this exchange between Pilate and Jesus, and Pilate says, so, so you are a king then, right? And, uh, and Jesus answered, well, you know, you, you say that I am a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to my voice. And we're not sure if there was a sneer in Pilate's voice or just sort of that um, skepticism of whatever, you know, goes. Uh, but he, Pilate's response to Jesus, who says, I've come to bear witness to the truth. Pilate says, what is truth? And so even though, you know, the Oxford English Dictionary would say last year's word of the year was post-truth, it's not really a new thing. Uh, and there's, it's always been in vogue to question the, uh, any kind of authoritative statement. Certainly any kind of, of authoritative statement that, that others would claim comes from the divine being and therefore is binding on all humanity. Uh, for years, the liberal scholars have been telling us, well, this, this isn't God's word. It, it contains God's word, but it's not really God's word. And if you read it and it feels true, it feels like God's word to you, then that's God's word to you. That's been going on for hundreds of years. Truth's a gift. And it's, it's a graceful gift to us. Um, truth can be hard. It can be, it can be cold. It can be mishandled. It, it, can be, it can be fumbled. It can lead to, to guilt. It can lead to shame. It can lead to conflict. It's, it, can be, uh, it can be inconvenient. Truth, truth can be really ugly sometimes. And if we're honest, uh, the truth is hard for us because of those reasons. We don't want to be hard. We don't want to fumble. Uh, we don't want to give offense. And so if uh, your wife asks you, does this dress make me look fat? You know, you're automatically asking yourself, maybe, uh, maybe the post-truth world isn't so bad. Because uh, you don't want to give offense. And, uh, and if you tell the person across from you, that, you, know, do, do you, if you see that their zipper is down, do you tell them? You tell them an inconvenient truth. Um, and, and the truth can be really, really uh, bulky sometimes. And so it's, it's why it's so refreshing when you see somebody able to handle the truth in a really uh, beautiful way, in something that's lovely. And so when Jesus comes and he says, I am the truth, 
what you see in him is something that uh, defies our understanding of how to handle the truth. We've never seen this before. Because in Jesus, the truth never sounded so good. It never sounded so lovely to us. So when Jesus was going around and he was saying and teaching the, uh, God's word and teaching the crowds, and uh, um, people just had this, um, uh, they were awestruck. They couldn't get enough of him. They were willing to forego comforts. They were willing to forgo food. They were willing to forgo sleep. They would go anywhere to follow him just to hear from him. And created sort of these crises that the disciples would be like, what do we do? We've got these people and they want to hear you. And this is weird. Because people just couldn't get enough of what Jesus said. And and they were amazed at what he said. Over and over and over. And you hear that that testimony. They were amazed at what he said. Um, Even as um, even though even those who weren't even his disciples, even the officers of the temple guard who were sent on an errand by the Pharisees to go and arrest Jesus at the Feast of the Tabernacles in John 7, they were sent on an errand to arrest him, and they come back empty-handed, and the Pharisees go, well, where is he? <laughs> and the officers said, well, no one ever spoke like this man. We couldn't arrest someone from whom the truth sounded so good. And in Jesus, the truth never looked so good. The truth is beautiful from him. It was lovely. It never, even, it never looked so good. Um, in, in Luke uh, chapter 4, Jesus you know, rebukes this demon. He says, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown the man down in their midst, uh, the demon came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. The truth never sounded so good. The truth never looked so good. And it was lovely. It was graceful through Jesus. Um, the truth from Jesus was, wasn't, wasn't hard and, and blunt. Don't get me wrong. It could be incredibly sharp, though. But he never used the truth as a weapon. Uh, when he did use the truth to cut, he used it like a like a, a nationally renowned um, surgeon who uh, is so precise and uses that scalpel to get to the cancer, and only the cancer. And so when Jesus uses the truth, he's not using it as a weapon. He's using it to, to expose and to remove our spiritual cancer, to expose and remove our, our relational cancer, to expose and remove our our, our um, societal cancer to expose and, re- and, and remove our global cancers and to ultimately expose and remove our eternal cancer that would lead to eternal death and instead heal us and give us eternal life. This is the, 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 the grace of truth coming to us as a gift and then the, the gracefulness of truth through Jesus that, that we see in him. So that's, that's a little bit of how... Truth, you know, is, is, um, is so gracious. Um, let's talk about um, truth, the truth about grace. Let's talk about its nature. 
uh, its implications real quick. Uh, the nature of grace is simply that it's free. I mean, you and I know this. We, we know it, but we don't really believe it. That the truth is something that's, uh, that the grace is something undeserved. Uh, you don't deserve grace. If grace is extended to you, it's not because you, it was some obligation or some expectation. It was really something freely given, undeserved. Uh, grace is something that's unearned. You don't, when you get a paycheck, you don't write a thank you note to your employer um, because you earned that. You deserve that. But grace is something that's undeserved. It's unearned. There's no strings attached to grace. And we need to know the truth about grace. We don't believe that necessarily. We, we, we understand that those things are true, but, but how quick are we uh, to feel entitled? How quick are we to feel like we're owed the gifts of God? Grace comes with all kinds of implications. In verse 16, we, we hear that from his fullness, from the fullness of Jesus, we've all received grace upon grace, just waves and waves of grace. Um, uh, not only the grace that came to God's old covenant people, but the grace that we've received, the fullness of that grace through Jesus. And um, Brennan Manning, he's a former priest, uh, wrote the Ragamuffin Gospel, uh, has a great perspective on grace. He says that the deeper we grow in the spirit of Jesus Christ, the poorer we become. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God, right? So the deeper we grow in the spirit of Jesus Christ, the poorer we become, and the more we realize that everything in life is a gift. Everything. That's some of what we don't understand. We really do think that I've earned this, I deserve this, you know, I'm this self-made person, I've Stood up on my own two feet. How come everybody else can't do that? Or, you know, the converse is true. I've, you know, how come I'm not getting all these things that I'm entitled to and people should be doing this for me, et cetera. It works both ways. But so the gospel says that, that everything is a gift. Grace upon grace. And, the, and that the implications of grace are at least a couple of things that grace exposes our need because we need these gifts. We need filling we don't like to admit that. We don't like to admit that we're empty, but we actually do need to be filled. And we need forgiving. That grace exposes our guilt. Does this feel true to you in a post-truth world? Do you feel your need for forgiveness? Do you feel your need for, for fullness? Or do you just go, no, I'm fine. What the gospel says is true about truth and what's gracious about grace that you know, if you want to believe that, that's fine. That can be your truth, but it's not my truth. Does that feel true for you? Um, well, ultimately, I wanted to talk about glory and how grace and truth are, are most, most glorious when they're together. Um, uh, when you think about truth without grace, it's like a diagnosis without a cure. If you only get truth without grace, it can be very, very uh, hard. Randy Alcorn wrote a, a little book called the, the Grace and Truth Paradox, and he says that truth is quick to post warning signs and guardrails at the top of the cliff, right? That's what truth does really well. Yet it fails to empower people to drive safely, and it neglects to help them when they crash. And that's how the truth can be very ungraceful. And the contrary thing about grace is that grace without truth is like a, a, um, like a buffet without an appetite. Right, you've got all this stuff, but 
There's no hunger for it. There's no appreciation for it. And uh, Randy Alcorn, again, says that Grace is quick to post ambulances and paramedics at the bottom of the cliff where there was the crash. But without truth, it fails to post warning signs and build guardrails. And in so doing, it encourages the very self-destruction it attempts to heal. He says that countless mistakes in marriage, parenting, ministry, and other relationships are, are failures to balance grace and truth. Sometimes we neglect both, and often we choose one over the other. On the front of your, your bulletins, this little, little diagram of you know, the intersection of truth and grace, and then you've got um, glory mentioned there. We'll talk about that in a second, but... Um, most of the time we think about truth and grace not intersecting but as two poles along a continuum. You know, you've got truth on one hand and grace on the other and, uh, and, and we try to figure out where am I on that continuum. Um, and they, they create this tug of war uh, where you feel like they're actually in competition against one another. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm a truth person. I tell the truth. I tell it like it is. Well, I'm a grace person. I just kind of go with the flow and I let people do their thing and so on. You almost feel like those are, those are opposites. And that, le- that gets us into a lot of uh, messy, sticky places. Uh, but if you, if you, instead of placing them on either end of the pole, if you, if you make them intersect, if you create like this two-by-two two graph, uh, some really wonderful things happen. You see that when you get truth and grace together, they, they become glorious. So looking at this, if, if you've got a pen, draw, draw the intersection. You know, make that line, and I want to make four quadrants here. Uh, if, if you've got only grace, you know, if you're taking grace all the way out to the right and, and at the bottom where there's not a lot of truth, that bottom quadrant there, what you've got there is somebody who's very accepting, very gracious. They're, they're very affirming, um, gracious and affirming. Those are some of the positive things, but, but it can easily become something very permissive, something where anything goes if you've got a lot of grace and very little truth or no truth at all. And so the further down to the right that you go, you know, the worse off it becomes. All grace, no truth. And the further up to the top left that you go, you're in this realm where there's a lot of truth but very little grace. So where you've got wonderful boundaries, you're communicating expectations, and those are good things. Those are healthy things. But it can easily lead to painful places where, you know, you become demanding, uh, where the rule basically becomes it's my way or the highway. I tell it like it is, here are the rules, here's what's true, no grace. You don't want to live in either one of those quadrants. And you certainly don't want to live in the bottom left quadrant, where there's no truth and no grace. In that case, you don't get, you you certainly don't get affirmation, you certainly don't get boundaries. What you get is indifference, actually. Someone said about the Holocaust, that the opposite of love wasn't, wasn't the hate of the Germans, of the Nazis. The opposite of, of love wasn't the, the hatred of the Nazis. The opposite of love was the indifference of those who stood back and let it happen. So in that bottom left quarter, you've got the absence of, of anybody who cares about your boundaries, and you've got the absence of anybody who cares if you're affirmed or accepted or not. What you've got there is somebody who could care less. 
But when you move up into that top right corner, when you see a lot of truth and a lot of grace, what you get is something glorious. What you get is instead of this, you know, um, false dichotomy, this false choice where you've got to pick one or the other, truth or grace, when we live out both, when we see both, uh, we, we see something glorious. And that's what Jesus came to do, to, get, to, to, to bring us this fullness of grace and truth, truth and grace. He wasn't giving us one or the other. He was something completely different from our expectations. And that's what made him so glorious. That's why when he came and tabernacled among us, we saw his glory. Glory is the only one of the Father. Uh, this beautiful connection back to Exodus where the tabernacle, uh, when it was constructed, God's glory cloud descended on that. And that was the sign of his presence. And there's even this uh, semantic link between the word um, for the presence, the dwelling of God, and the tent, the tabernacle. They almost are like the same word. And John is telling us that all of that, that, that God's people were hoping for in, in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the fullness of grace and truth. And in verse 14, when we read that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we see his glory full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth, by the way, is not describing Jesus grammatically. It's describing the glory. But the glory of Jesus is full of grace and truth. And where do we see the glory of Jesus most profoundly displayed? Where is it most visibly on display? Uh, at the cross, where justice and mercy kiss and ask no more. The cross graciously tells us the truth. Uh, and it tells us that sin results in, in separation. And Jesus, you know, demonstrated that. It was the greatest evidence of uh, the, the separating influence of sin is Jesus was forsaken on the cross as he bore our sin, became a sinner uh, in, our, in our place uh, and suffered in our place. He demonstrates the truth that sin separates. God tells us the truth. We may not like that truth. It may not feel true to us. But he told Adam and Eve the truth about the consequences of sin, and he tells us the truth about sin, that no matter how untrue it may feel, sin separates us. But, but I think it does feel real. I, th I think we don't want to admit it, but I think we all understand and know that sin does this. Sin separates us. Sin, uh, as one author put it, is antisocial. It's fundamentally antisocial. And when we sin, it ruins relationships, and it separates friends, and it separates families, and it separates spouses, and it separates cities, and it separates races, and it separates countries. And that's what sin does. It estranges us. You feel that, I feel that. You may not call it sin. You can call it whatever you want, but the effects are the same. That's what sin does. It separates us. And God says that if we aren't reconciled to him, if we're not aware of our need for forgiveness, we will remain separated from him. And that's why Jesus came to offer us the forgiveness that he extends to us because he took our place. And when verse 17 says that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, the cross graciously tells us the truth. And the cross also tells us the truth about God's grace, that God's grace is deeper and richer and far greater than you and I can ever imagine. 
that the grace and love of Jesus are boundless. There was nothing he wouldn't do. There was no extent that he wouldn't go to, to, to communicate his love for us. Jesus loved you on the cross. God loves you. And for some of you, that may not feel true. In a post-truth world, you may think, that's not true for me. We're not in a post-truth world. God's truth has always been true. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's impossible for God to lie. And the cross demonstrates that he loves you. Circumstantially, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what evidence there is that maybe looks like God doesn't love you, but you need the evidence of the cross, which is far heavier and weightier than anything circumstantially you could be experiencing. Uh, The glory, where grace and truth combine, the result being glory, the the fullness uh, of grace and truth, glory actually means weight, heaviness, it's this, this... something that's impossible to ignore. It's beauty, it's glory, it's heavy, it's, it's life-changing, it's life-orienting, it's future-forecasting, and it's eternity-shaping because it's that significant. And that's, that's the cross. And for Tabernacle, I pray that we never lose that message. Thankful that we've been able to share that message. I pray that we continue to be transformed by that message. And I pray that we continue to ask ourselves some key questions. Do I believe the truth? Do I believe there's truth anymore? Or maybe, maybe we get suspicious because people in power tend to abuse the truth. And they say there's truth. And they're using it for their own uh, goods and, and um, their purposes. And we just become skeptical of any claim or any assertion of anything objective anymore. You can't be a disciple of Jesus and say that we're in a post-truth world. We've got to have his truth to lead us and to change us and to make us more and more in his image. You can trust God's word. You and I can both trust this word. I know it comes from the greatest authority that there is, and he has absolute power over our lives. But what makes him trustworthy is what did he do to demonstrate his love for you? Again, the weight and the glory and the evidence of the cross. You can trust someone who would lay down that power, who would lay down that authority and give his life for you. You can trust him. You can believe him. He tells us the truth. Another question we can be asking ourselves is, do we believe in grace? mentioned before that humanity is kind of divided between those who feel self-made and they've worked hard and they've accomplished lots of things and they think everybody else should work hard because, you know, if you just do good work, you'll earn your way and everything will be great. And then you've got a whole other group of voices, like almost seems like the other half of humanity saying, you know what, we're just entitled to everything and I should be given all these things and so on. Nobody believes in grace anymore. True grace. Real grace, undeserved, unmerited grace. Do you believe that that's what you have in Jesus? And if you do, it changes your life. It changes your outlook. It changes your uh, relationships. It changes your reactions. It changes, you know, all of those 
default patterns in your life that you've never examined before because you've never been challenged to think about why do I insist on this? Why am I so hard when it comes to this issue? And grace transforms you. So if you, um, if you get grace and you're, you're a grace person, good. Um, you need to also be asking yourself, you know, you who maybe have that reputation for easygoing, you don't rock the boat, you don't, you're, not, you're not in a conflict, that's okay, you know, let other people duke it out, I'm just going to be a peace person. Ask yourself why. Why don't you speak up? Are you afraid of the truth? And are you afraid of what might happen if you, if you speak the truth? Jesus spoke the truth. And he did it elegantly, and he did it graciously and gracefully, and we need to, to learn how to do that as well. But, but just because you can't do it as well as Jesus doesn't mean you abdicate your responsibility to be a steward of God's truth and to be an agent of change that the Holy Spirit could use in another person's life. It doesn't mean you become mouthy. It doesn't mean that you stop showing grace and kindness. But you've got to be willing to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. And maybe, maybe, you're the, maybe you're the truth teller. You're not the grace person. You're the truth teller. You're not afraid to tell it like it is. You're not afraid to call a spade a spade. Uh, but maybe you've got to ask yourself, how come I have a hard time letting things go? Why do I feel so angry all the time? Why am I so annoyed <laughs> with people and our society and everything that's happening, why am I so on edge? Is it your job to set people straight or is it your job to love them the way Jesus did? Jesus could say things that were very unsettling to people, but they never questioned his love for them. And figure out how to love, figure out how to forgive, continue to speak the truth but speak the truth in love. The more and more we become that kind of church full of grace and truth, the more and more we become uh, an expression of God's glory through Jesus and what he did on the cross for us, you know what? The better we are for each other and the better we are for this city, the better we are for this county, this community, etc. That's why I pray that Tabernacle will continue to grow. That's why I pray Tabernacle will continue to multiply. I don't know what God has in store for us for the next 15 years, but what I know is that if we continue to keep our eyes focused on Jesus and if we continue to behold his glory full of grace and truth and if we continue to be changed by that glory, other people are going to see that glory as well. And they're going to be changed by it too. They're going to be better off for it. This world's going to be better off for it. You're going to be better off for it. I'm going to be better off for it. And God's going to get a lot of praise and a lot of glory. So let's, uh, let's pray as we continue. Father, would you continue to bless your word to us this morning? Would you continue to shape us by your grace and by your truth into something, something that's not either or but both and, something truly glorious, something that's very Christ-like, something that that can even take people's breath away, something that defies expectations and brings surprise, brings delight, brings some challenge and some disruption, but in a way um, that is very loving, in a way that is part of the new creation, in a way that is challenging, a post-truth and a post-lie, post-grace world, 
and showing them the beauty of Jesus. Please continue to change us. Please continue to connect the dots for those here who are uh, just just kind of getting in on this and just learning this story, uh, perhaps for the first time. Lord, give them faith and help them to follow Jesus. Lord, help us all to follow you. Help us all uh, to receive your grace and truth and to be agents of your grace and truth. We pray in Jesus' name.